0: It looks so daunting, and I'm glad we never did that. We never had a strategy. Eyes are 60, the nose are 59. Abstention 1, The bill will be read a third time. Unlock the bill. It, it was a big moment. Like we had changed
1: everything. I can remember some ministers of Parliament would would be sitting there crying. What we say in New Zealand, the mana, the strength and the wairua the spiritual realm of our journeys as sex workers was so deep and rich and um oh gosh some of those people have passed now but they're part of us and their histories are not really um recorded
2: To episode two of blueprints the podcast about political strategies for one of 200. on the 25th of june 2003 the prostitution reform act passed into law on its third reading with a majority of just one it was the culmination of 11 years of lobbying and campaigning by the new zealand prostitutes collective an organization formed by and for sex workers in 1987. as a result of the decriminalisation. Aotearoa New Zealand became one of the world's leading countries for the health and well-being of sex workers. And what they did is studied by many a similar group to the world over trying to achieve the same thing. NZPC spokesperson Dame Catherine Healy has been quoted as saying they didn't really have a conscious contra- strategy. It was just quote, a constant chip, chip, chip and using every situation that presented an opportunity. I think this is an even better reason to analyze what they did and why and how it felt because they executed it brilliantly and it shows us that we don't need some fancy director of communications or strategy overlord to make good, smart and strategic decisions. Simply put, they focused their time and energy on Parliament and making one-on-one appeals to MPs. They patiently built alliances with an amazing array of community groups and consciously framed their narrative according to their audience. They were also able to weather some significant compromises to the final version of the bill and kept focused on the core principles they were fighting for and the things that they could not negotiate on. We spoke to Catherine, who was one of NZPC's founders, and Anna, who was key in the lobbying effort. Catherine started by describing what things were like for sex workers when the organisation was formed in the late 1980s.
0: Well, sex work-related activities were virtually um, impossible to do within the law. So, you know, as a sex worker, sure, we we were allowed to be sex workers, but we weren't allowed to work, essentially. So that became impossible. And every time a sex worker was working, she, he, they were essentially breaking a law. And occasionally the police would come into that mix Quite deliberately and entrap sex workers and arrest them and charge them with soliciting so that was an incredible disruption and also it meant that you carried the stigma of a conviction attached to your name forever and you know to carry a prostitution as it was called then related conviction really was you know it was really hard so the landscape wasn't that nice and of course we had hiv and aids concerns and it was ridiculous that some people were really conscious of how many condoms they had and whether those condoms would be used as circumstantial evidence also um, we as an organization had formed in the late 80s 1987 and we were about building you know, community support and awareness around HIV. We were, we, were, we were also engaged in trying to change the conditions that made our lives hard and our work in particular.
1: I came here in 1980 and this was a very very busy uh, busy street. As street-based sex workers everybody had to be on their toes because the police were out for everybody. Yeah. Expect to help you and um, You don't want to tell them anything because, you know, what you're doing was illegal.
0: Um, The conversations were happening informally and, you know, there was a kind of response going on as well, like we had HIV concerns and we knew that we needed to get cracking and organise ourselves and figure out a strategy to prevent HIV. The police were coming in and pretending, from time to time, to be our clients, and their strategy was to set us up really and trap us, and then they'd come back and arrest us. And sometimes, you know, there were, you know, they'd do things like count the condoms. You know, they'd go through the rubbish tins to see how many used condoms there were, and. The massage parlours where many of the women worked, or they'd tip out the handbags of the people who were working on the street, like the trans workers in particular were arrested for soliciting. So we had this absolute tension, and it, we set up our organisation and we had a contract with the Ministry of Health from the late 80s and they wanted us to do sensible things. We wanted to do sensible things and work with our peer group and make sure that everyone had the, um, you know, the condoms, the safer sex information strategies on ways to keep yourself safe, etc. However, you know, we had the police on the other hand who periodically would stumble in and disrupt our lives, and disrupt all those good intentions that were about a wider good as well, you know, about public health.
2: After a few years of the organisation's work, NZPC had established its credibility as a key part of the public health system and as a legitimate voice for sex workers who were being put under enormous strain. Their Ministry of Health contact gave them a little bit of money, their advocacy attracted more sex workers to contact them, In other words, their resources were growing. And as their resources grew, they wanted to keep improving their lives. And so they began to discuss decriminalising sex work. To do this, they correctly identified another resource they had, the media's interest in them as a source of good stories.
0: I think the media was incredibly important. Of course, there hadn't been a sex worker-led organisation. We were fighting for our rights from day dot. You know, the reason we formed the organization, you know, HIV was one reason, but we also wanted rights. We wanted people to understand us, you know, to accept us. You know, we we saw ourselves as being very much a part of so many communities and we didn't want to be ostracized. So, you know, the other tools that we had on hand were the media and the media loved us. They liked to engage with us. We were, you know, the downtrodden and we were somewhat exotic prior to that people had spoken about sex workers mainly you know and you'd read these awful media reports you know the police would be going on about how many prostitutes had been arrested and you know and the voice of the sex worker wasn't there at all until we came along and Not in any organised sense, at least. So that was really important to engage with media. I mean, sometimes they'd ring, there'd be a mindless kind of story. We had one landline um, into our community base and some intrepid reporter thought they'd reach out and it would be some mindless story. But, you know, we had our own agenda and we'd take that relationship with that journalist and say, look, actually, you know, everything would be improved if we could only decriminalise sex work. Mm -hmm. The um, very first interview I did, I remember just saying to this reporter, please stop, please stop. I mean, the tape recorder was there and, and, you know, like, you don't know what to say. You're stumbling over your words. You're certainly not articulate in that pressured situation. And, yeah, I think we did have a sense of what we wanted to say, but we didn't have a sense of how... Um, context could be played around with and you know like and I see it now I see and hear people saying things like oh we've been misrepresented and I'm thinking well probably it, it comes with experience you learn how not to give over language that's going to be used against you and just know that your snippets are going to be cut in half and probably not going to be misquoted. You are going to be quoted. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A key part of any campaign is being able to motivate people to join you. Doubly difficult if your strategy involves people coming forward, telling their stories to the media and to politicians, and triply difficult if the people you need to do that are workers who are stigmatised and working illegally.
0: Absolutely difficult, you know it's still difficult. I mean stigma is a huge thing and back then it was it was not only stigma, it was stigma on steroids <laughs> with, you know, the, the weight of the law, you know, standing up, you were putting your friends at risk, you were putting the places you were working in at risk and it, seriously I mean f- for people hosting us as workers in their massage parlours, they were taking a, a risk. So, you know, when when we started to speak out, and it was a very small group of us in the beginning who were able to do that or felt angry enough and pissed off enough to to do that, it, it was probably a bigger risk than what we appreciated. So, you know, getting peers to come on side, you know, there was all that kind of concern around, I can't, you know, I've got children at school, I've got parents, I've got... You know, even in some situations, people had partners who didn't know they were sex workers. And then the work-related stuff too. I need this money. You know, like if I start standing up and stirring around certain issues, I'm going to lose my job. And that, that was a real concern for some of us. We needed that work.
2: This is the same distinction that Simon drew in his concepts of needs-based and wants-based campaigning in episode one. Workers who are part of the collective stepped forward under difficult circumstances because they needed to. Their working lives were difficult and dangerous, and they needed decriminalization to make that better. Nevertheless, the campaign began with just a handful of them ready to engage with the media and approach community organizations.
0: You know, the idea when we got together as a network and then became an organization, and I remember that moment thinking, oh, gosh, crap, we are an organization now. (laughs) Because somebody reflected back and said oh you know we need to contact the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective and I remember thinking that's us (laughs) and you know we've been spoken about and that that idea of momentum you know it started to build and move beyond us so it took its own thing so sometimes we were referred to and we sounded like a huge organization (laughs) In fact, we were just a a small group at that time of committed individuals, and um, coming out and, you know, building the confidence. I think the contract that we had eventually, a year later, with the Ministry of Health and the appointments to serious bodies like the National Council on AIDS, etc., helped our legitimacy and created this kind of feeling that things are changing, the mood's changing, people are are far more receptive to the idea of sex workers and the need to do something sensible to make sure sex workers have condoms. So little images, you know, of the the risks we were taking, you know, the police would come in, easy story to tell. Oh, we've been arrested, we've been dragged down to court. They've taken our condoms. We're too scared. And of course our clients weren't you know, they were the good boys, they weren't at risk of being prosecuted, so nobody liked hearing that story. We loved telling, telling it. And, you know, that kind of brought the public opinion on side. So to find the kind of simple story that you could repeat time and again in a way where you have lived it mattered.
2: What Catherine's describing there is what people would now call a narrative strategy. There's a think tank in the US called Narrative Initiative which is really worth checking out. They define a narrative as, quote, a commonly understood idea or belief that is reinforced over time through a series of related stories. And by shaping how people conceive of societal problems, these narratives create the conditions for the acceptance of solutions. So NZPC were telling a series of stories about themselves. They appeared on TV documentaries, in newspaper articles. They wrote a book about sex worker stories, they took every opportunity they could to set their narrative in the public conversation
0: to get sex workers together to appear publicly anywhere (laughs) was really really not going to happen i mean you know people had a lot at risk a lot at stake and even today you know that that can be the case although it's improved a lot i think we didn't really understand the process for decriminalization we mucked around quite a bit. I think we didn't, because we simply didn't understand. We thought actually there would be a benign kind of crowd in Parliament who would hear our voices and respond to those headlines. We were quite effective at creating our front page stories and change the law. We didn't realise you know, that actually there's a whole lot of stuff there that has to happen and we did throw our toys out of the cot and offered to give the government funding back unless there was an interdepartmental committee created to look at the inconsistencies in the law and we were serious like we didn't you know we said we would go back underground you know this needs to be cranked up you need to have a look at the conflict of interest here particularly between the Ministry of Justice and Police and Ministry of Health and the, the the, you know the absolute overwhelming evidence that the, there was no alignment there in government agencies about prevention to do with HIV. And then, of course, we got into the whole labour rights. You know, it's our job, it's our work. But we didn't articulate that because that was kind of inside a talk. So there, there were things we kept quiet about, we, we didn't say sex workers work, it wasn't our anthem at that time. We did say, you know, things like our clients aren't arrested and we don't want them to be arrested, we're the ones who are arrested and, you know, our safety and our health is undermined, we can't report violence easily, so we appealed to a lot of different groups on that basis, like the women's organisations were really on our side for the gender, um, Issue that clearly there was a human rights kind of catalyst there for them to come on side and support us because of the gender.
2: The organisation was set up as a collective of collectives. There wasn't a formal membership, and the collectives in different regions largely acted autonomously. As anyone who's been in a non-hierarchical social movement or campaign will know, this can sometimes create a tension.
0: If you can appreciate, we kept in touch with each other with fax machines. (laughs) (coughs) <coughs> and you know and I, I mean i think that's the nature of the organization today it's a collective of collectives and there's a lot of you know different responses around the regions but but we did you know we had to have internal discussions about things like youth you know what 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 do we see What's best practice in terms of use? We didn't have that language of best practice. None of that. You know, it was just like, what what should we do with the young sex workers? What should happen? They were being prosecuted, and as juvenile, as, as as young sex workers under the age of 18, they could be arrested as well. So, so we you know we had to figure, okay, you know, what about this idea that their clients be prosecuted or third parties? And we had to weigh up. That idea. There were other ideas that we had to weigh up. Some of us were really opposed to, to certain things. I mean, to begin with, some people were saying things like, Oh, I don't think we should decriminalise the pimps. And some of us were saying, Why not? <laughs> we need bosses, managers, places to work from. We need our pimps. You know, quite a radical. To say, but you know, when you explained that, if if I was working in a massage parlor, which I was, I I couldn't have a manager because if we didn't decriminalise their role, we couldn't safely work there. They'd become brothel keepers, and that made no sense. So we had those sorts of debates where we had to achieve consensus. And in terms of us as an organisation, you know, trying to get that consensus, and, you know, that work with all the different players in the sex industry as well, who were all chipping in, <laughs> and, and, you know, there were there were so many different ideas, and trying to say, you know, look, we think this is how it should be, and you you're constantly standing in front of sex workers, and some of the other players like the operators, and explaining you know why we didn't want mandatory testing, why we didn't think it was you know sensible to just have licenses for massage parlors, why we wanted independent sex workers to have the ability to work independently and from home and all those and why street-based sex work had to be decriminalized completely and why why they shouldn't have to carry, Licenses IDs. and I, yeah, yeah all those.
1: legalisation versus decriminalisation. Yeah, you yeah. Know,
0: We looked at what
1: other countries were doing. Like we looked at, you know, what's happening in Germany, what's happening in Amsterdam, you know, and then what's happening across over the Tasman in Australia. they Victoria's legalised. New South Wales was decriminalised because we looked at their best practice around decriminalisation and the occupational and safety health guidelines that they had.
2: One of the key things that they needed to convince MPs that the law needed to change was other groups to support them. By the campaign's end, they'd built an amazing coalition of support from groups including the Salvation Army, the Māori Women's Welfare League, the Council of Trade Unions, and the Business and Professional Women's Federation.
0: Well, you know, it was really interesting. A lot of groups were really welcoming and reached out to us to, you know, like, we didn't, we didn't have to hustle that much to break through the ranks to get invitations. It was the other way around. And I can think of, you know, speaking to groups like the Labour Women's Health Caucus and the National Women's Health Caucus and, you know, a whole raft of different groups who were proactively seeking our input. And similarly, you know, the National Council on Women and the Business and Professional Women's Federation, who who were the first major organization who came out and supported us their business was yes and cool. you know they came out publicly and supported us and so i know some of us in the organization would go to these um, <coughs> meetings that were about things like poverty you know when on po- poverty was one campaign that we were a part of with the national women's organizations but there was a whole public health sector too so we were welcomed into that um, arena and all those groups and public health and so on. It was a a really, you know, we engaged with everyone. We needed allies and we must have been um, lucky in that sense that we we did get very good allies.
2: But in order to get their bill through Parliament, they needed an MP to sponsor it and drive that internal process. Labour MP for Christchurch Central, Tim Barnett, was the guy.
0: Tim and I had been on the, you know, the board of the New Zealand AIDS Foundation for oh, okay. a period in time. So New Zealand, yeah. it's like that, <laughs> and you you have all these different kinds of contexts, and they get bigger, and you get more focused. And so Tim offered.
2: Barnett was only New Zealand's second openly gay politician. He helped to found the LGBT section of the Labour Party in the 1997, and he was popular in Parliament. He was seen as genuinely caring about the issue and thus trustworthy by his colleagues across partisan divides. So Tim offered
0: to put the uh, a private member's bill into Parliament. And I think in that period, you know, we'd been fluffing around thinking that the benign politicians were going to change it at midnight, as Mike Moore once said. I just remember being at a meeting with Mike Moore and Helen Clark, and I think I summoned a meeting, it must have been at the Labour Party somewhere. I remember this meeting and just this discussion about how to change the law. I think we thought it would really just be that simple, some politician key politician would just roll it out but when Tim Barnett came in it became very clear that you know we needed to to do a lot of fine tuning um, fine tuning, yes
2: At the time They estimated that there were around 8,500 sex workers in Aotearoa, New Zealand by the mid-1990s. About 40 volunteers ran the organisation with 1.5 full-time equivalent staff. So as Catherine said earlier, though it can sometimes read as if NZPC was this kind of juggernaut of a community group boldly going about its work, they were most definitely bootstrapping it. But was this campaign the organisation's sole focus at the time? Were they throwing everything at it 24 hours a day?
0: No, in between the broken condoms and my boss is a prick. <laughs> you know, like all of us in the organisation were involved in providing services, you know, for sex workers, and those services are comprehensive. So, a strong focus on sexual and reproductive health. So we we would be dealing with people day in, day out, you know, and and they came, you know, like it was before you could send texts and, you know, people would come to these places in droves and um, we know that because we had to record the statistics of how many people um, we saw and so on and so we had our, if you like, our day job and then some of us had our night jobs which was, you know, to work as sex workers as well and... To, to pick up on the moving the, the bill as it became, like, forward, there would be regular meetings, so we would have regular meetings, which would be about, you know, I think in the final years, you know, like there would be regular sort of weekly meetings to see where we had got to and, you know, right down to the fine-tuning of drafting the bill, what does it look like, does the comma go there, does it change the meaning?
2: One of the key things about the Prostitution Reform Act was it was written by the people that were gonna be affected, i.e. Catherine, Anna and all their colleagues and friends.
0: But I mean sometimes you would get information that wasn't accurate and you know, like you might strike the people who really didn't actually know, you know, what had happened and you know, they they didn't really have an understanding of the full you know the full picture of their own legislation so we sometimes felt we were really swimming mm. around trying to figure it out and you know like avoid really wise people who know the answer because <laughs> <Avoid it. laughs> sometimes they can yeah, yeah. yeah and we had a few like that and I remember this this really helpful lawyer <laughs> or actually there are a few lawyers a couple of them and I I remember thinking about what you know the advice they'd given and it was just just never going to work as a model Mm. and you know like you hang off every expensive word that you've contracted to (laughs) we we worked on a lot of that absolute you know like we talked about the principles and it didn't come from external people it came from what we were Mm. thinking about and talking to people like law professors and so on who were helpful
2: so often in campaigning for change, people get stuck on aligning their big grand vision for how they want the world to be and the concrete demands that their current resources can allow them to win. It's really difficult because we're driven by the need to improve our lives, and yet we rarely have the power to change it exactly how we want now. This is basically the essence of strategy, to sequence those demands, build campaigns so you can move from one to the other to the other as you build your resources. As we've heard already, NZPC had looked around the world for industry models to emulate and then set their demands accordingly. However, in reality, they were a small organisation with not that many resources, fighting for legitimacy and rights in a sometimes extremely hostile atmosphere. And so they did have to accept compromises to the bill. One of the most painful of these was a ban on sex work being listed as a skills category for immigration visas.
0: I think we had to be quite realistic. It was hard to come to a point. The the migrant one is the one that really upset us. We, you know, it was a fait accompli. There had been a discussion between the Minister of Immigration and different members of Parliament, from what we understand, because I well remember us turning up to a meeting with Tim and we wanted to meet to talk this through with the Minister of Immigration. And it was like, no, it just won't happen that's the condition and you know we felt quite upset about that and you know understandably we've been upset for all the way through but making a compromise we we looked at things and we thought yep can we live with that yes we can ironically one of the other things we found really really offensive actually we felt that we could live with compulsory health promotion, you know, if signs need to go up to say, use a condom, so be it, you know, that's a kind of optional extra, we could live with that. What we were upset about was the compulsory nature of sex workers being compelled to use condoms, because the consequence of that is a fine, and it's still could result potentially in a sex worker being hauled into court for not using a condom so we really were upset at that but out there in sex worker land on the ground in the in the field a lot of sex workers say well it's not an issue for me i like it Um, i like being able to say to clients no i'll get into trouble if i don't use a condom or you know they tell the clients that they also have to use a condom which is true that clients are legally compelled. So things that we would get upset about as sex worker advocates and, you know, people that were doing a lot of thinking about the way forward for the change uh, may not have translated Mm. into things that upset uh, sex workers in, in real time.
2: For a bill to pass through Parliament, it goes through three readings. At each reading, it has the opportunity to be changed, tinkered with and then voted on. At its first reading, the POA passed with a clear majority. Its support was diverse, cross-party and had a near-universal backing from female MPs.
0: It got through its first reading by a huge margin in the last Parliament in November 2000 by 87 votes to 21 and it was then sent to a select committee where it spent
1: some time there.
2: Parliament's taken another major step towards decriminalising prostitution. The prostitution reform bill last night edged closer to being adopted after MPs approved a number of changes. A final vote is expected in two weeks after MPs voted 62 to 57 to move the bill to its final stages in Parliament. With some direction about who to approach from MP Tim Barnett, the NZPC had set about booking meetings with these MPs, telling their stories and asking for their support. Anna, who joined the campaign after that first reading, explains how they did it.
1: And so we sort of started profiling them you know, um, which constituents they looked after, um, were they religious, particularly if they were the Polynesian MPs. I think our group, we focused on them. And so our, we had, you know, trans street worker-based sex workers, and I think this is myself, I'm a Melanesian, you know, former sex worker, but we had to come out of the closet and share our stories, and they weren't public, they were just sort of how we're sitting around like this mm-hmm. um, in a very quiet setting, and then you come out of the closet and say so I'm a sex worker. This is what's happening at the moment under you know the conditions I'm working under this law. And you know a lot of the stories were quite painful, and um, a lot of crying, and um, a lot of silence. And, uh, and even some I can remember some ministers of parliament would would be sitting there crying because this is the first time they've heard the sort of these stories. You know, and there were other sex workers before our group had come in because we were the generation we we came after because the the workers who'd done the first reading and spoke to the select committee, we came after that that group. And so there were other workers' shoulders that we stood on who, you know, continued through that or some who, you know, had gone and you know left the collective. And and it just grew from there. But I remember a religious MP in South Auckland that we went to speak to, he had a Bible on his desk and um, he said he'd only give us not even 15 minutes and so in that time we just had to get our party line across (coughs) why were we there what was the purpose of it and why should we persuade him and i'll tell you from my own experience i dressed for every mp whether they were muslim or hindu or whatever pacifica address for that that's how i went because i know in their mind they'd be thinking okay she's probably gonna turn up in fishnet stockings or high heels or something but we were all dressed sensibly and i think it shocked a lot of them i don't I don't about know about preparing but when i first started going to meet some politicians i'd just sit back and watch and i'd just sort of see you know if other people have been quite veteran talking to politicians and i thought okay i'd watch the body language and think have they missed any key messages about particularly I think for me what stood out was for Polynesian sex workers was that, you know, they were the workers who had the most um, soliciting convictions. They were the workers who faced a lot of discrimination around gender identity and horrible stories. I even try not to get emotional now. Um, Yeah, and and I remember just sort of sitting back and watching and listening And then you just sort of, I don't know, something happens. I think, you know, Dame Catherine says your Tourette's is coming out, and then it just blurts something. And then, you know, and then I'd probably end up just talking over the one who, the the most veteran speaker. Because I'm like, I can't fucking sit here anymore because I think, as you know, I know they use this term now people of colour, but we have have our own stories as well. We can't be spoken about our own experiences because it's completely different. The MP that changed who, but I remember Tim, he'd give a list of these MPs who were quite difficult sitting on the fence, who were either Christian, Māori, Tangata whenua, and very staunch in their ways around their people. And, and Tim would say to me, if, you can, if you, your group can go and talk to the, these politicians, they're really sitting on the fence, and I don't know if, we could, if we're going to get this through or not. And so when we, our group went to talk to them, we were only supposed to be there I think not even half an hour sometimes it was like an hour almost felt like two because just the stories that came out and what we say in New Zealand the mana, the strength and the wairua, the spiritual realm of our journeys as sex workers was so deep and rich and um, oh gosh some of those people have passed now but they're part of us and their histories are not really um, recorded because, you know, they're a huge part of our journey from the inception of this organisation. And um, I think when I came in here, I was a rookie. Yeah, so, and now I feel old. <laughs> but I'm forever 28
2: <laughs> Anna and her colleagues around the country were doing this on a regular basis, using the broad alliance of organisations they'd built to speak to the MPs once NZPC had told them their stories. This wasn't a mass mobilisation campaign of street protest and demonstration, but a campaign tightly focused on the decision makers and delivering the outcomes that they needed, which was votes for the PRA. But despite the bill passing comfortably, at that first reading, with backing even from Prime Minister Helen Clark, the support was decreasing, as a counter power had been gathering pace.
1: There were the challenging times when we were, you know, had to attend public debates and this was just before the third reading, I remember we went into an area, the Redneck area of Auckland, um, which was the former Prime Minister's area in Helensville. And we, um, one of our representatives at the time, Kate she had to get up and represent our community. But as a team, we sort of discussed it's gonna be quite difficult because on that panel, we had um, Sue Bradford, who was elected Green Member MP and Sandra Coney who, uh, you know, she was a feminist from the 70s that, you know, fought for abortion rights and the cervical screening. screening. But she was very pro the Swedish model Mm. and criminalising the clients. And so, you know, I think NCPC were, you know, at at times were during the... I think for Auckland we were challenged a lot around, you know, what did decrim mean? And, you know, this is the Swedish model versus what what decriminalization and i remember when we went there it was honestly we were going to it felt like persecution like a witch hunt because just entering that room people were just calling us names and anti um, anti-prostitution calling us um, wreckers and we and so as a team as a, as a collective we just decided we wouldn't say anything and we had these big placards which we hand painted in my body my choice and we, this is Trisha's idea, (laughs) and um, we just sort of taped our mouths, quiet silence, and we walked up and down that, I mean that place with with the placards in silence that whole time that debate was happening. And honest, I think for me, my time at, the, at here, it's only twice I've ever felt that presence of hate towards us. Another time was during the Manukau City Council, City Council regulation of specified places, bill, and that was in the Same thing. We went into an environment where they are very anti-trans sex workers, anti-sex work. Again, the same thing. And there was only five of us, and I remember asking some of the street-based sex workers to come. And support us. They did, but I told them they're going to say hateful things. You can't act out. You can't say anything. You just got to. We've got to stand together in, in and and strength. And they did.
0: Tim Barnett's phone calls these days are all about sex. Barnett knows around oh yeah, 10 yeah. MPs still don't know how they'll vote, and he's determined to win them over.
2: I think it's about completing the replacement of old-fashioned, irrelevant law that tries to moralise with legislation that's actually relevant to, to people. The lobbyists have been hanging around Parliament all day.
0: It is very crucial. I don't think the debate will come around again you know, for a number of years and it, there is a lot that weighs on this. MPs today received letters from Tim Barnett urging them to vote for it and urging those supportive of it to change other MPs minds. The margin will be narrow
1: whichever way it goes. The last vote saw it pass with a two-vote majority but some MPs have decided to switch their votes at the last minute. I think sometimes we didn't even talk because we were always talking to politicians right right up to the eleventh hour. I'm surprised we never lost our voices because even during the, the third reading before the third reading, anyway, that we were still, you know, going into the area where the politicians, the, the area where they drink. Yeah, I remember myself and another worker was like, was, I'd say, well, it's like going kind of being in a brothel. You're hustling to get this guy's vote. We're not getting his money. We're trying to persuade them, you know, why you should vote for this. And everyone, everyone in our the collective was all doing their part. But I remember one Malden MP. I remember I went to his office and. He was smoking cigarettes there, and I was quite shocked. And I thought, "Can you smoke cigarettes? He goes, oh, "Of course, goes, have a cigarette girl." And I was like, "Holy shit!" And I thought, "Okay." And that was probably one of the most relaxed lobbying experiences for me because I was in Parliament smoking cigarette with this moulding MP, and you know he would say to me, "What are you going to do for my people? Why should I? Why should I vote for this?" And I thought, far we out." And I thought I'm not even multi, you know. And I was by myself. Just had to, yes, sell your pitch and um, just get it across. And and we, yeah, we did. And that was the crazy thing about back, back then, even the, before the third ring, because um, the, the nemesis groups were, uh, they would leave the politician's office, and then we would be the next one in. And we, yeah. So that it was like that on that day. Yeah. They have a way lot more money than, you know, we could ever see or
0: dream of. Just
1: over two hours, MPs will begin the final controversial vote on whether to give legal protection to prostitutes. Political reporter Garth Bray explains.
2: Tim Barnett gets his last chance to sway the doubters. Will 61 of us vote to remove the last significant vestige of Victorian moral law from the New Zealand statute book. But no-one was confident what was going to happen and Anna had to make a last-minute appeal to one MP.
1: I think for him, why he was sitting on the fence was because he one he was worried about how tangata whenua, how were they going to be affected by decriminalisation and what does it mean for, you know, tangata whenua if the law changes? Will they have the same rights as Pakeha? Will they? Have, and I just thought, I would not even know what the hell that looks like because we're still we we're, we're still living and working under this, the state law where we're still getting arrested or. You know, and I thought, how do I try and come up with you know solutions to something I don't even know what the future looks like? So, it, and sometimes it became about race. I'm saying this not in a racist way, but as from a Polynesian way. And I've, we just have a Polynesian thing. We had to connect in that. And I guess, I think I remember saying to him, for as long as I work at NZPC, I will dedicate my life to Tangasapenua.
2: Good evening, welcome to Late Edition. The world's oldest profession is now legal in New Zealand, but the move to decriminalise prostitution squeezed in by only one vote, and it was passed after a handful of MPs changed their minds.
0: The ayes are 60, the noes are 59, abstention 1, the bill will be read a third time, unlock the bill. Unlock <laughs> the It doesn't get any closer, but all it takes is one vote more than your opponents to change the rules. We um, were put in the parliament in the gallery, so we were sitting right there, and it went off. And I think we leapt up and hugged each other, and so on. It was a big moment, and mm-hmm. you know, it just felt really like we had changed everything. Catherine, the tangible difference, as far as you're concerned, that's going to make to the industry. I think it's going to make a huge difference for the way people feel to be marked as a criminal, to be documented, to be registered by the police.
2: If the obvious part of a campaign is winning the change that you want, then another potentially more important part is actually ending up with more power than when you started. For the NZPC then, winning the campaign really did cement their reputation for effective representation and built their organisation to a point where they had more resources to service their community.
1: I think what really humbled us was when the, the authorities or the different state players approached us and saying, well now we have to create uh, you know, policies around sex work and occupational safety, how they came to us as the experts on different government departments and how we achieve that.
2: Having this power, extra resources and strength was especially important for NZPC because almost as soon as they'd relaxed there was a backlash.
0: But the reality for us, after that high peak, we imagined we would climb down and rest Mm -hmm. and have some respite. But in actual fact, we went into a really protracted fight. And it's ongoing, and it relates to local local government. government. And so we saw a lot of stuff, like Anna just mentioned, You know, there was another bill where there was an attempt to zone street-based sex work which would essentially have made it very difficult for a lot of those workers. And we had to fight a lot of councils and most recently in Upper Hutt. We've, you know, just hearing Anna describe that sense of people speaking about sex workers as if we're people from outer space and horrible and not nice people, you know, all of that was played out again in this micro kind of way, in a in a local body authority, in a city council, close on to hate speech. You know, people just feeling it's okay to stand up and submit these horrible things about sex workers, and so we didn't. You know, we've never we, we reached that pinnacle to a point, but we we've had to fight to hold on to it. We've had to fight to improve it and you know that's still ongoing there's a lot more that we haven't achieved you
1: can never lie down
0: yeah. yeah
1: and i remember when the law went through the 25th of june in 2003 not even two weeks auckland council had already done a, a bylaw of you know um process the process the, the pro- the by-law. Yeah. yeah and we were like what the f is that
0: a lot of the people who've been lobbying we think you know against that the um, bill had a really good time of it. And so they took all that anger and to the city councils and started lobbying them. So it was, there was no rest at all. It was like just
2: really intense. As depressing as this sounds, if we're truly to transform society the way we want to see it and the way we think it should be, then this kind of backlash is always going to happen. If it didn't, it would have been a straight line from Te Whiti Orongamai's peaceful resistance at Parihaka in 1881 to some kind of decolonized socialist paradise today. But NZPC had built their resources, developed their skills, and they could maintain their power. A final word of encouragement, though, from Dane Catherine.
0: I, I think it's really important not to feel daunted. That's my opposition to strategies, to things being written down. Mm. You know, it looks so daunting and I'm glad we never did that actually. We don't have, have a strategy. Because yeah. yeah, we never had a strategy. We just had a you know, a sense that there's a good person, there's someone we have to talk to and we should say yes to this invitation. And you know, it was that kind of thing and don't write people off, you know, because things can happen in situations and don't write people off.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of Blueprints, from one of two hundred. If you want to support the work of NZPC, then Anna and Catherine asked me to ask you to follow them online. you can keep track of their plans we really want these lessons to reach as many people as possible so please if you've got a minute to spare leave us a five-star review in your podcast app thanks to Masarima and Clone Records for the music and thanks also to Ethan Henson next week Howard Chloe Swalbrick New Auckland Greens or Auckland Central